Romans 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 33. And it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Oh, thanks, Christian. It's good to have you back, dude. In Turkey, they're finding kids in rubble without parents. And as a still fairly new father, it's a lot different to see these kids who don't know where their mom or dad is. Young men who are married in this room, if you want to understand the heart of, of God the Father better, I encourage you to have children. It's life-changing. <laughs> well, they say caring, sharing is caring. <clears throat> and uh, somebody was very caring and shared their head cold with me. So I have, <laughs> I have no voice. And uh, so my, my low energy, my low tone is um, not because I'm not excited about the passage today because I really am. Um, it's just that <clears throat> I went through the whole squeaky voice thing when I was 14, and I don't want to go back today in front of my church family. So I'm going to move fairly slow through this, but uh, we're in Mark chapter 2, if you guys want to open up to Mark chapter 2. And at this point, Jesus' ministry is in full swing. Um, the crowds are swarming at this point, the energy is strong, there's, a, there's this momentum, there's this growth that's happening. Um, and, and Jesus has now turned what I, would, what I would call a critical corner of criticism. Critical corner of, of criticism in his movement. Um, he now has the kind of momentum among the people that the religious leaders now must take a critical and discerning look at. They don't have a choice at this point. Um, any movement that finds popularity will come up against this at some point. Where there is momentum, there will be opposition. And where there be naysayers, there be, well, whether it be yaysayers, there also be naysayers. Looking to sow seeds of doubt in the movement itself. Doesn't matter if the movement is good, bad, or indifferent, you're going to have both. If you have momentum, you're going to have both, yaysayers and naysayers. For Jesus, he's going to become a, coming up against a lot of opposition. And the keys to weathering this opposition will be these. There will be two keys for Jesus to weather this opposition. One is for Jesus to know what God has called him to. That is to say, to know God's will. 
uh, and Carson, there's a slide for that. And two is the ability to deny self. Know God's will for certain. That gives you 100% faith and guarantee and stability in your decision making. That makes you unshakable. And then the ability to deny self. In other words, I know the will of God. Now I have to lower myself to accept to accept that will. And so often, that's exactly how it works. And for Jesus, in Jesus' case, his whole ministry was really about denying his self. Almighty God, the form of a man, limiting himself completely for the will of the Father. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 2 today, starting in verse 13. Verse 13, we're going to read a little chunk and then we're going to look into it. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. To understand this fully, we've got to dive a little bit into a tax collector. And if you've been in a church for a while, you can almost quote the words I'm going to say for the most part. Um, The thing about a tax collector in Jesus' day would be um, that they would have been completely shunned from society. And it, and it wasn't just that they were sun, shunned from society. It was actually for good reason. There was good reason to shun tax collectors from society. Tax collectors had to bid on the city that they wanted to collect in, to Rome. They had to make a bid, a financial bid to Rome. A couple of problems with that. In order to win a bid on a desirable city, you... <clears throat> this is actually fairly new to me. This is kind of crazy. You had to bid on a desirable city, and in order to do that, you had to beat the other guy, right? You had to bid higher than the other guy, which would, of course, drive up the taxes. On top of that, if you wanted to make money, you had to overcharge. That's the part we all, we all know and remember, that tax collectors, what made them so slimy, was they had to overcharge the taxes because they had to pay Rome, the bid to Rome. And they, whatever they overcharged, they got to keep, So a bidding system would automatically create division between the people and the tax collectors. It would also be a constant temptation to the collector himself. Here you have temptation in the tax collector's world automatically. The funny thing about having stuff is that it makes you want more stuff. It's kind of how it works. I feel like here in America we get that pretty well. And so you can almost hear the tax collectors like, ah, this tax collection is so hard. It's hard work. I'm walking all over the city. 
I really need to buy a camel. Then two weeks later, Zacchaeus down the street buys a two-hump camel. Ooh, I want it so bad. Right? Probably was like thinking like, I I didn't even know it came in two humps. (laughs) It's amazing. You know, I've always said my back bothers me riding that one hump camel. The doctor says so too, you know? I'm going to be doing this my whole life. My, I need my back to be good. How much does it cost? Okay, all right. Well, fortunately, tomorrow, taxes are going up by 5%. So, <laughs> just one month. I just need one month of 5% more taxes. That's all I need. Then the taxes could go back down to where they were. And somebody's going to buy an elephant, and the whole cycle starts all over again. <laughs> and besides the temptation, the temptation's a problem because uh, if you're human <laughs> and you're honest with yourself, temptation's a problem. But besides the temptation, you also have isolation. You have isolation. If you won a bid to another city, you were leaving everyone you knew behind. You were going to move to a new city with a bunch of faces you've never met. And they're going to hate you anyways, because you're a tax collector. Well, at least anyone who isn't already doing taxes, or perhaps already has enough shame to not care what they'll look like sitting with a tax collector. This isolation even has legal ramifications, um, and this is the biggest piece that was new to me. I didn't know this about tax collectors in, um, in Jesus' day, but according to Lane's commentary on the New Testament, uh, when a Jew entered the custom service, he was regarded as an outcast from society, he was disqualified as a judge, or a witness in a court session was excommunicated from the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, his his disgrace extended to his family. This means that a tax collector would not be considered trustworthy enough to be a witness to a crime. That's the safest person for a criminal to have around. If you're going to commit a crime, roll with the guy who can't testify. What a foolish system. See, there's that 14-year-old just coming just right back. Foolish system. The the thing that really caught my attention um, with this, and actually, Carson, if you want to put the slide back up again, um, excommunication from the synagogue, meaning that he willingly gave up access to the spiritual community. For money. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus would be interacting with a greedy, defiant, God-hating, church-hating, Rome-loving, enemy of all that is good. And they're probably right. They're probably right. Tax collectors are probably the worst. 
And yet Jesus didn't come to change Levi's mind about the synagogue. Jesus, the creator and God over everything, came to earth so that Levi might have a chance to meet him. Jesus came to meet him. Right where he was. Say what you will about the character or social standing of Levi. When he was called, he responded. I love that. When he was called, he responded. And this was a very public calling. There could be no doubt about who Levi was. There's no plausible deniability here. Somebody can't come in later and be like, uh, Jesus, you know, I don't know if you realize, you know, he's a, he's a tax collector? That guy is a tax collector? Oh, the guy sitting at the tax office with the little sign of, welcome in, how can I take your money today? Like, that guy? Yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus called him in public with a crowd of witnesses around him while he was sitting at the tax office. Jesus wasn't concerned about being seen with the tax collectors and sinners because he knew what God had called him to. Therefore, there could be no shame whatsoever. No shame. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus knew what he was here for. There was no doubt, and so therefore no opposition was going to stop Jesus. See, Jesus is surrounding himself with apostles and disciples who will answer the call to follow the Lord's word. Where he takes his apostles and disciples is to the dinner table of sinners. And God has not changed his ministry today. Right now, he is calling his disciples, that's you and me, we the church, to the dinner table of sinners with one very clear difference. It's not about bringing ourselves to the table. In fact, you could say that our calling is exactly the same in a sense. We've been called to bring Jesus to the table of sinners. We've been called to bring Jesus. You see, if I bring myself and they like me, they're not going to meet Jesus. If I bring Jesus and they don't like Jesus, they're not going to hang out with me anymore. So there is a window there. I've been called to bring Jesus to the table, and whatever happens, happens. It's Jesus' work from there. God calls man's hearts. We're just called to bring him into the room. The question I had to ask myself while I was reading this is, who are the untouchables in our current climate? Keeping in mind that this passage isn't talking about society's untouchables. This passage is talking about those who are seen as untouchable by the church, by you and me, by us. And since we're in America, I'll say the American church. Who are the untouchables in the American church? Who are they? Who are we unwilling to bring into our home and sit at our dinner table? Or who are we unwilling to go to 
walk into their home and sit at their dinner table and introduce them to the one only true Savior. If history has taught us anything, is that there is great opportunity for the gospel amongst those who are deemed untouchable by any religious community. There is great potential for the gospel there. My background is in Calvary Chapel mostly, and so of course I think back to Chuck Smith bringing a bunch of dirty hippies in, having to rip the carpet out because people didn't like that the dirty hippies were in there with all their weed and their rock and roll. There is such tremendous opportunity for the gospel amongst those who are considered untouchable. Who are they today? And we have to ask ourselves, are we the disciples of Jesus or are we the Pharisees? Good news. <laughs> Either way, God's call to us is the same. What was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. Paul is the biblical truth that there is hope for the Pharisees as well. Jesus grace extends to even those who misrepresent him. What a good God. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have the opportunity to hear and respond to the Lord. Whether it's something we're already doing and we need to maintain that endurance or if it's something that we need to turn, repent of our heart against those who are the untouchables. Either way, God's arms are open for us to move. So Jesus' movement is is attacked by the Pharisees who bring into question whether or not Jesus is in the moral right. They question his moral standing as he hangs with those who have no moral standing whatsoever. And Jesus was unmoved. Why? Because he knew what God had called him to and he was willing to deny himself the comfort of man's approval. That's not the only accusation that Mark uh, records for us. Continue on with me. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples do not fast. And you always have to ask, is this an accusation or a genuine question? John and the Pharisees' disciples fast. In other words, the ramifications here is that the whole religious community disagrees with what you're doing, Jesus. Why aren't you playing ball, Jesus? Do you not care? Are you complacent about your moral status? Are you not serious enough to understand that we are supposed to be fasting and mourning? Your disciples, they're acting like King David just brought the ark back to the city or something. Almost. Almost as if they were in the very presence of God or something. How dare they? This is time for mourning. We, of course, have no indication that John and his disciples had a problem with Jesus not fasting. But they didn't need to say They didn't need John to say it. All they had to do was point out John's actions. Why? To sow seeds of doubt. 
This has been a tactic by the enemy since the beginning. Sow a seed of doubt about the motives of God and his people. Did God surely say? Do you think John would be okay with your actions, Jesus? Because he's doing something different than what you're doing. Everyone else is taking everything very seriously, but you guys are celebrating. You're celebrating. Seeds of doubt for Jesus and his disciples, and then the pressure. Pressure them to change course. Pressure them to conform to their designs. Conform their minds to the world's designs. And the religious institute's designs. So what's Jesus' response? Verse 19, Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast on that day. And so Jesus immediately, he does this beautiful thing that marks every great leader who has full faith and confidence in those that they are leading. Jesus immediately goes to bat for the attitude of his disciples. There is a time and a place for fasting There is a time and a place for celebration. And it was deemed lawful in Jewish communities to forego regular fasting during wedding celebrations. So Jesus is saying, not only is it okay for them to not fast, it would be actively wrong to fast. There's cause for celebration. God is doing something here. He then shows confidence. He shows faith even in the seriousness of, in, the, in his disciples by claiming that when he is gone, they will indeed fast. They are serious. They're celebrating now because they're, they are part of what God is doing and it's, it's amazing. It's a cause for celebration. But I know their hearts and there will come a day they will fast. They do care. They are serious. Jesus' disciples get to share an incredibly rare piece of human history. The benefits and purpose of fasting, that is disciplining your body to draw closer to the Lord, is rather unnecessary when you are walking side by side with him. What need have the disciples for self-discipline when God himself is right there guiding them step by step with his own voice? It probably seems absurd to Jesus. I'm right here. It's a cause for celebration. But that's never Jesus' tone. The cool thing is that defending his disciples wasn't all that Jesus had to say. He also, movement that God had charged him with. He's going to defend his people, and he's going to defend the direction that God has placed on his heart designed for him to do the will of God for his life. He is going to defend that as well. Verse 21, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, 
new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And this passage right here is responsible for teaching most pastors everything they know about sewing and winemaking. <laughs> Probably like 90% of it at least. probably not true, but it amuses me. It also amazes me what Jesus is said, saying here. Jesus referenced sewing. Shout out to all you sewers out there. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? Like, we all know, like, carpenters, they get their, they, they get, you know, ah, Jesus is a carpenter. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, it's kind of cool, right? Shout out to you sewers. Like, Jesus knew about sewing. It is such a humble thing for the creator of everything to need to know how to patch old clothes. You got to ask, did Mary teach him that? It's, of course, just an illustration. Jesus' point is that he isn't doing things the old way. He says, I'm doing something new. The perfect man has never happened before. A sacrifice for sins of the whole world has never happened before. Jesus came to earth so that we might have beauty for ashes. So that he might trade our hearts of stone for beating hearts. to put blood back into the veins of man. Jesus came so that God and man could sit at the same table and eat bread. Not just for a short period on earth, but for all eternity in heaven. And no man, no Pharisee could shake Jesus from the mission because he knew the Father's will and he was willing to fully Die to self in order to accomplish it. He was in touch with the Father in perfect communication. He knew the Father's will perfectly. It didn't matter if there was cause or reason to be concerned about these tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't matter if the whole religious community disagrees with him. It doesn't matter if his movement disagrees with him. He knew the Father's will. Father said, do this. And he knew the Father said, do this. And so nothing could shake him from it. Worship team, you can come up. Hey guys, if we call God our Lord, if Jesus is our Savior, then God has a perfect plan and will for our lives. God is pleased to accomplish something through you, through me. Do we know what that is? And is there any form of discouragement that can stop us from following our calling? See, the hard thing is it's so much easier to tune our ears to the voice of man and the desires of flesh than it is to tune our ears to the voice of the Spirit of God. But it's so 
so worth the fight. We fight all kinds of fights all week long, all year long. Most of the time I stand back and I, I look back and I say, wow, I don't know if half of those were worth the fight. Hearing the Father's will is so completely worth your energy. It's worth our fight. It's worth our time. Understanding his will gives us that foundation, that stability to say, it doesn't matter what comes against me. It doesn't matter what the opposition is. I know what I'm supposed to be doing and nothing can stop me from doing it. And we gotta be willing to deny ourselves, die to ourselves. Lord, I thank you for the grace to get through with no voice. For a congregation um, that loves you, loves me, not offended by a squeaky 14-year-old boy voice. Lord, for everything you want to accomplish in this church, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that we would continue to seek you, to hear your voice, to understand your will, to not give up on the fight, the good fight, fight that is worth fighting, that in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, we would know what you've called us to. That we wouldn't back down from it. That no opposition, whether it be flesh internally or externally, could slow us down. Because Jesus, you, you showed us how to do that. Teach us and lead us. Lord, be our supply. Feed us. And Lord, most of all, we long to spend time with you at the table. Be honored by our worship this morning as we glorify you with our hearts and with our simple little songs of praise. Be honored this day, we ask.